0: An idol is anything, even a good thing, that has an inordinate place in your life. So the Bible says that we're supposed to love our families, and yet the very thing that we are to love can become an idol when it crowds out the place that is only reserved for God and His Son, Jesus Christ, in our life. And this morning, as we have sung about what a wonderful Savior we have, and the immense privilege that it is to be covered in His name. I pray that this morning we will have the opportunity to exalt together in the Christ that we see revealed in the Scriptures. And here's the issue. You may not be aware of this, but we are in the midst of a political season, And we happen to have the two most unpopular candidates that have ever existed in American history. Regardless of who you vote for, you will need to take a bath. And um, (laughs) it's just the way that it is. I cannot find a candidate that represents me because I know that there are particular issues related to the redefinition of the family, uh, to the murder of innocent babies in the womb, to biblical morality, and no one stands for those things. So we're left choosing the lesser of two evils, and that's a problem. I'm tired of the political bantering back and forth and the empty promises and the multiplied words that we'll really will amount to not much, no matter who the candidate is. And while I certainly appreciate Kelly, Carl, and Crothammer for their political insights and commentaries, Wouldn't it be fascinating if just for a second, in the midst of this political season, they could go, oh, wait, wait, breaking news, we have a um, guest here with some insights into this situation, and they could cut away to the throne room of heaven and ask Jesus for his opinion on all this hullabaloo that we're in. Wouldn't that be interesting to have his opinion on what we do Because politics is not a new issue. Politics is as old as the human race. And as a matter of fact, even this morning in the passage that we'll look at in Matthew chapter 22, we see that Jesus is caught up in some political intrigue. Jesus is in a tad bit of trouble. If you've been following along with our preaching schedule over the last few weeks, Jesus has come into town and uh, he's just caused controversy. He has uh, really offended the Jewish religious leaders, and they want rid of him. And not just like exile, they want him dead. But being good Jews, the last time they checked, the Old Testament still prohibited murder. And so that's out of the question. So they need some way to kill him without violating the Old Testament. And so they are going to find a way to trap him. As a matter of fact, the word We'll see in just a second in verse 15. It's the only time it ever occurs in the entire New New Testament. It's the word for to trap, to entangle, to ensnare. And so you think of um, uh, something getting caught by its leg, stepping in kind of a noose and being caught, and, you know, the fox that chews its leg off to get free. That's what they want to do to Jesus. They want to ensnare him. They want to trap him. And they seek to do this by asking him questions. And so we move from a period where Jesus, over the last several weeks, has taught parable after parable after parable, denouncing the religious establishment. Well, now it's, uh, let me see here, it's episode 5, the Pharisees strike back. They're ready to go. And so now they approach Jesus with questions, and the questions are significant, the first of which we'll deal with today. What do we do about taxation and the believer's relationship to state power? I find it terribly Amusing that in God's providence we preach on this passage as soon as the Republican National Convention ends. <clears throat> Couldn't be more timely. Next week we'll see what do we really truly believe about life after death. That's an important question. And then how do we, uh, without kind of getting into the minutia of everything that this entire book teaches, how do we know that we live in obedience to God? What are God's greatest commandments? Controversial but important questions. And so over these next four weeks, beginning today, we'll see that the Pharisees and their parties of other interested folks ask Jesus three important questions. And Jesus closes out this little episode by asking them a question of his own. Jesus has created physical upheaval in the temple. He came in and he turned the tables over and he chased everybody out. He's created a spiritual disturbance by saying, hey, these religious authorities that you love and respect so much, they're wrong. And so now they want to see what will happen to Jesus when he feels the political heat get turned up on him as they try to entangle him in these important questions. You can follow along in Matthew 22. It's page 699 in the pew Bibles in front of you. And then our Uh, most commonly referred to scriptures will be on the screen above us. The very first thing that we see is that Jesus is asked a political question with theological significance. He's asked a political question with theological significance. Look at verses 15 through 17. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You defer to no one, for you don't show partiality. So tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? There's an interesting crowd around Jesus for this plotline. You see, the Pharisees are the ones who are plotting and scheming how to trap jesus but the pharisees are not the ones who ask jesus the question did you catch that you see jesus isn't the only one who has disciples the pharisees have disciples so if you could go back in time you whoop, scotty beam me up travel back wherever you want to go and be there you would see pharisee wannabes these are junior pharisees they are training up to be pharisees and we don't know what's going on why did the pharisees send their disciples It could be that Jesus would recognize the Pharisees. Like, hey, hey, how you doing, Troy? Scott? Yeah, see you back there. Art, good to see you. Nice phylacteries, by the way. Um, Maybe the disciples would not be as so readily apparent. Maybe they were trying to kind of sneak in by disguise and knew like the wannabes could get in and wouldn't be recognized. Um, Don't know, maybe they were less threatening that Jesus would receive their question without some kind of intrigue if it was asked by the actual Pharisees. Here's the thing that's interesting the Pharisees were religious purists and they despised foreign oppression and therefore hated the taxes. So they they have a particular way they want Jesus to answer. They want him on their side, so to speak. But then they are joined with the Herodians, who the Herodians would be like a political, political action committee, a special interest group, representing the interests of the Herodian family. Uh, Herod is the ruler, one of the rulers, and he has groupies. And they are certainly comfortable with Roman oppression and Roman taxes because part of that goes in their pocket. So here you have strange bedfellows, Pharisees who hate Rome and hate the Roman tax, and the Herodians who are comfortable with Rome, and they think the tax is pretty cool. So anyway, Jesus answers this question, he's in trouble. They have put him on the, th- the horns of a di- di- uh, dilemma. Either way, he's trapped, and it's a problem. I love the way they give this really flattering introduction. Oh, teacher. Uh, like they're stumbling over their own words. We know that you are truthful, and you teach truthfully the way of God. You defer to no one, and you don't show partiality. L- literally what it says is you don't look at anyone's face saying he doesn't pay attention to their socioeconomic status, to whether they're high or low, whether they're rich or poor. He is not a respecter of persons. But yet they flatter him and try to butter him up one side and down the other and say, hey, um, we've got a question for you. And it's about taxes. And it's not simply why are our taxes so high? Like if we vote for the other candidate, is he going to lower our taxes? It's not even asking why are taxes, why are tax dollars so unwisely spent? We know what their motivation is. It is to trap him because the Pharisees and the Herodians are on separate sides of the issue. From the Pharisees' perspective, they want to know, is it okay through the tax to support an idolatrous and debased state and its cult of emperor worship? You know what happened on the coin that they would give for the tax? Whose inscription was on it? Whose graven image was placed on it? Caesar's. So the coin itself was a little, uh, any Pokemon players here? <laughs> pocket monster? This coin was a pocket idol. Plop it right in there. It's a little portable idol. You can take it with you wherever you go. And, you know, and it's okay for you to have this idol because it's officially endorsed by the government. So the Pharisees are going, can we support an idolatrous debased state who worships its ruler? Is it Okay. Is it okay to recognize Caesar as a sovereign or must Jehovah alone be sovereign? They are trying to trap him either religiously or civically. If they get him to agree that the tax is unjust, he'll be considered an insurrectionist and in trouble with the Herodians, reported to Rome. But if he sides with with, uh, the other side, then he's not being sympathetic to a tax-burdened and oppressed people. What's he going to do? How's he going to answer? Because they are literally drooling for the opportunity to skin him alive no matter what he does. What's wonderful is just when we talk about the awesomeness of who God is. Like he didn't wake up going, hey, I hope I get to have a conversation about government. Who wants to like wake up and talk about that? You just get into fights when you talk about it anyways. You know, And yet, <clears throat> as they approach him with this very vexing, trapping question, Jesus provides a very profound but simple response. And we see this in verses 18 through 21. <clears throat> the scriptures say that Jesus, perceiving their malice, he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him in denarius. And then he asked them a question. Whose image and inscription is this? They said, all in unison, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Therefore give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they went away amazed, and they left him and went away. Jesus' answer exposes their hypocrisy while all the time they think that they have trapped him. We remember from the very first verse, their motive was to entrap, to ensnare, to catch him. <clears throat> and Jesus does something really interesting with his little object lesson here. Uh, to begin with, verse 18, Jesus tells us three things very quickly, boom, 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 about uh, the fact that you can't blindside Jesus. Like, if you're a parent, um, have your kids ever blindsided you? You know, like, they asked mom something, to which mom said, absolutely no way, No. And then they ask dad. Dad's like, yeah, that's cool. Now dad's in trouble with mom. The kid's in trouble for manipulating the parents. And you just got blindsided, dad. You got played a fool. These people think that they can blindside Jesus. Hey, listen, uh, I know it's like nine o'clock in the morning, but let's hit them with the tax question. I think this will be a good one. If we want to trap him, if we want to catch him, let's do this. But Jesus says three things that show you can't blind them. Number one, he knows their malice. Number two, he knows that they are testing him. And number three, he knows their most ultimate character because he calls them what? hypocrites. They are appearing to be something other than what they really are. We know from the scriptures that their intention in the question was to trap him before they ever asked the question. So they are coming and posing it like a, hey, you're really smart. We have a question for you. What's your opinion on taxes? And Jesus says, you hypocrites. That's not a legitimate question. You are politically motivated. You're trying to nail me. It's not going to happen. So here's the thing I want you to notice. And this, it's not even really the main point, but it's something that I think is absolutely beautiful about the person of Christ, is, like, we love Jesus' miracles. Like, what mom would not love, like, Jesus feeding the 5,000, mom ain't got to cook today? I'm all for it. Jesus for president. And if he could do that every Sunday, potluck with Jesus, that'd be awesome. We love his miracles, because they demonstrate his power. But his miracles also do something else. And his healing miracles, they demonstrate his grace, his love, his mercy, and his compassion. I mean, that's that's a good thing to think about. God is powerful. God is gracious and compassionate. Here's an attribute of of Christ that I don't think we think about. He's really smart. He's really intelligent. You can't blindside him. and You can't ask him a question for which he's unprepared. And in this dialogue over the next couple of weeks as they try to trap him with these questions, like Jesus doesn't put him off and say, hey, that's an excellent question. Question, hypocrites, give me 24 hours and I'll have an answer for you tomorrow at noon. woo woo woo! okay, Corral, we'll have the shootout. No, he's ready with a response. Like, have you ever, like, gotten into a dialogue and then, like, you really thought of the, really, the, the right thing to say after you've already said something? Has it happened to you? Yeah, uh, it, it happens. Jesus is so intelligent. He, he is endued with such wisdom that he is ready on the spot, Now, if you could pay for that gift, anybody interested? to be always ready with the right answer, to have not just kind of like practical stuff come out of your mouth, but wisdom. I mean wouldn't it be incredible if, like what you said was wise? And you know, most of you in this service are not old enough to be wise yet, you know, but here's here's the point. You have access to the wisdom of God because Jesus is the wisdom of God. And in relationship with him, as you mature and grow in him, you may not think you're wise, and that's a good thing because another virtue that you should cultivate is humility. God gives humble people wisdom if they don't think that they have it all in themselves. That's a good thing. And so, not a main point, but in this trapping thing, there's just great intelligence. Jesus knows if he sides with Rome, he'll be discredited religiously as the Davidic Messiah. He's supposed to be pro-Jewish people. So he can't side with Rome. He can't be unsympathetic to a tax burdened people. But yet if he answers negatively and sides with the Jewish people, he'll be construed as an insurrectionist, a rebel, a troublemaker. And so Jesus has a little object lesson. I don't have any coins, but he says, who's got the coin that we pay the tax with? And I think there's some things about this that are just, again, really wise. Number one, Jesus doesn't have the coin. Now, that could mean a lot of things. It could mean that Jesus was poor. And I don't think that's actually the case. I think Jesus' ministry was actually very well funded. Um, He just didn't manage the money. Maybe one of the disciples did. And so he didn't, you know, in his toga, he's like, hey, anybody got a coin? You know, I don't know how many pockets they had, but, you know, wrapped all around you can have pockets all over the place you you don't have the coin on them and so like this coin that in itself is idolatrous to the pharisees jesus doesn't even have one he has to ask for one and the implication is that the pharisees who think that it's a pocket idol are the ones that actually produce the coin thereby exposing their hypocrisy yet jesus when he is handed the coin he's not afraid to handle it like he doesn't think he needs to ceremonially, ceremonially wash. It doesn't defile him. It doesn't make him vile. He's able to handle the coin and say, all right, hey, whose inscription is on this? And they have no idea that Jesus is setting them up. And so they're ready. He he asks a question and they all say in unison, it's Caesar's. He's got them right where they want him. They have set the noose to trap him. And they're not going to do it. Jesus is going to get out of this unscathed. And in his response, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Give back to Caesar, give back to God. He does something really beautiful. He upholds the sovereignty of God, but at the same time, the legitimacy of government. We think like we could just do away with government and just let God rule. You know what would happen? Absolute anarchy. Because then, who, which version? The Baptist version, the Presbyterian version, the Jehovah's Witness version, the Russian Orthodox version? What's going to happen here? He, he recognizes the sovereignty of God and the legitimacy of government, and he gives a most sublime and mature response to a really vexing question. What are the Pharisees and Herodians going to do with that? Not much. There's nothing that they can. And and many see this actual passage being foundational to our founding fathers and their conception of the separation of church and state. God endorses government. And I know that sometimes government, uh, government, it's not a four-letter word, but a lot of times we talk about it like it is and we need to be careful about that. What does civic government do for you? You know one thing that I'm grateful for? We've got people like Chris Hefner. That work to keep us safe. That's a good thing. We've got people that have served in our armed forces to protect the sovereignty of our country. Um <clears throat> I just got my car washed, and so like I'm grateful to have paved roads. I'm grateful that I don't have to drive on dirt roads everywhere I go, because I just got my car washed and I don't want to have to wash it again. I didn't pave the roads, but I get to drive them. That's awesome. There's electricity, there's water, there's building codes. So, you know, we don't just get to jerry-rig this building and then it claps on us because the government has codes for education, for food, for buildings. And the government is supposed to work for the common good of people and not interfere with points of doctrine or religion. Religion in the separation of church and state Religion doesn't seek political power to coerce people to believe things. Here's what we believe. In the separation of church and state, you have the opportunity, the God-given and uh, governmentally endorsed opportunity to be stupid. You can believe whatever you want, and I will defend your opportunity to be wrong, but I also have the opportunity to tell you what I think based upon God's word is right. And I don't want a candidate in office Who's going to force people to agree with me? Because you cannot be converted by coercion. That is a thing that God's spirit has to do through his word. And we cannot, we cannot prostitute ourselves to want the power of the government to force a morality that doesn't come apart from the heart. Well, what would we do if we could pass Christian laws? Even if people acted Christianly, they would be acting as hypocrites. To never confuse what the government can do on the outside with what only the gospel can do on the inside. And I think we think if we just elect the right person and we pass the right laws, guys, we'll be just as sordid and unrighteous and despicable as ever because it won't change the inside. And that's what we want. We want conversion. And that's why we believe the separation of church and state is so important. The government doesn't interfere with what we believe. We don't use the government to manipulate people to some kind of outward conformity to something that doesn't work if it's merely outward conformity. Here's where it comes down to. Jesus, in establishing both the sovereignty of God and the legitimacy of government, is showing that respect for government is a vital component of respect for God. If you respect God, he says, you have to respect government it's fascinating if you slow down enough to really look at the meat of this passage the pharisees ask a particular question in verse 17 they say do you think it is lawful to give taxes to caesar do you think it's lawful to give taxes to caesar jesus does not answer that question He doesn't use the word give. Jesus says, therefore, verse 21, give back. There's a difference between giving and giving back. You you catch that? It's nuanced. I can give something to Josh. That's me. If I'm giving back... There's a responsibility and an obligation for me to return to him something that is rightfully his. Again, it's this establishment of the goodness and legitimacy of government. We are giving back, there is an obligation and a responsibility. So Jesus says, Taxes are not just legal, they are obligatory. It's part of God's design for us living in the world. Where are you gonna to go to live without government? Your head and maybe like a wall with pads on it, <laughs> you know, you're ne- and then the reason you're in the room with pads in it is some authority is keeping you there. There is nowhere you can go to get away from government, so make sure you have a good one. Work for a good one. Jesus is teaching we are to have a loyal but limited responsibility to civic authority because civic authority, even though legitimate and ordained by God, is not ultimate. There is one authority that is ultimate, and it's not you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus. In any institution, any government, any ruler, any individual, even yourself who makes you the ultimate authority or him the ultimate authority or Congress the ultimate authority or the president the ultimate authority has committed treason against the king of the universe. The president cannot be the ultimate authority. But friend, neither can you. And we see how the government can become treasonous against God. And we fail to see the multitude of ways in which we commit treason ourselves. Instead of just being a history lesson on a confrontation that Jesus had, it's important for us to note that this question of taxation and our, our living relationship with state authorities has abiding and significant implications for today you see there's only so many ways we can split up this god and government problem four of them number one god alone your idea for government can be god alone and that may be a a very pious way to think about it this is how the nation of israel started out they're rescued from egypt and god is their king but that wasn't good enough for the israelites they wanted a king just like everybody else had a king and interestingly enough in the um in the Middle Ages, when there was um, oppression, the God-alone kind of government led to monasticism. Let's get away from government. Let's go out in the desert. Let's start a commune where we can worship God how we want. And that, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Like, I, I don't, I, you're not real sure about that. Being a monk is maybe a good thing when it comes to personal purity, but how do you engage the world with the gospel when you're off living in the desert and you don't care about the world? So this, this God alone thing, that's not the answer. And the scripture even tells us it's not the answer because God has just established the legitimacy of government. So God alone is not the way. Government alone, number two, is not the way. This is the view of non-Christians and seculars. Government is supreme. They are totalitarian, and they recognize no other sphere of authority besides government. Uh, I've, I have been told and I have read, um, have not verified... But uh, uh, Putin has passed a law that it, it is now, I think, July 31st, August 1st, it will be illegal to have any conversation about religion outside of the walls of the church. So when you go to Moe's today, or you go to McAllister's, or um, wherever you go, when you come, when, wherever you go in your home, and you want to have a conversation about God, illegal now in Russia. The, their motive is a good one. They want to combat terrorism. And so the way that they're doing it is they are equally, equal opportunity saying no conversation about religion, even good religion. As our government grows bigger and claims more authority for itself and thinks that they own us, there may come the time, even in our government, where when we don't tow the, the party line related to what bathroom you use or whatever the issue of the moment is, we may lose the opportunity to speak freely what our convictions are. Government alone is not a faithful way to do this. Well, maybe the issue is God and government with government in the dominant position. That's not real helpful either for issues that we've already talked about. Only God should be supreme. And the result of this kind of system is becoming a coward like Pilate. Pilate interviews Jesus and says, I have found nothing in this man worthy of death. Yet he is so concerned, not about God and his conscience. He is more concerned about government because government is supreme, not God, that he knew what was right, yet obeyed the state over God. The answer, friends, as we look at the total witness of Scripture, is that the answer is God and government with God in the dominant position because the Bible says that good Christians should be good citizens. So friends, listen, we're not going to have a campaign for you to sign up to vote, but you know what? You should vote. God wants you to participate. You have the freedom to participate in this election. Vote your convictions. And quite honestly, may I say shame on you if you don't. You cannot complain if you do not participate. Listen to these scriptures. These are important for us to hear. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14. I don't want you to think that this question is limited to this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14 says this. Submit to every, every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor who sought to kill Christians as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this. First of all, Priority number one, first of all, I urge that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all of those who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Titus chapter three, verses one and two. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Guys, isn't that such a hard thing? Like, we can't even submit to people that we like. We we talk about the authority of the church. We don't submit to the church. We We don't submit to anyone. We don't submit to Jesus. If you don't, you're not a Christian. To be a Christian means to bow the knee, that he is king and you are not. We have to submit. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind always showing gentleness to all people. And perhaps the, the bee's knees, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, everyone must submit to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. Even the rulers that we don't like, that we didn't vote for, the Bible says in some kind of way that is mysterious to us, God is still in charge. Even though that person may hate God, may despise God, may work to actively undermine God's authority, the Bible says that there is no authority except that which is established by God. How does that work? I don't know. But I know what the scripture says. And it says, submit, whether they're of your party or persuasion or not. When we think about our discipleship, and in this political season, how do we walk the narrow path through all of this turmoil and trouble and cacophony of noise? It's just, ugh, I don't want to listen to it anymore. Here's what we're supposed to do. We are to offer due respect, but never deified Respect. Government is only a tool and only God is God. I'll say that again. Government is only a tool and only God is God. We offer a due respect, not a deified respect. Civic authority in Jesus' mind is dignified, but it is also delimited. And So don't, friends, don't, give too much authority to government i don't think that's a problem for this worship service that might be more of a challenge for older americans but friends for you if if the challenge is not to give too much authority to government the challenge for you is to not give them enough they're established by god we are commanded to participate And we desire, even in our obedience to the civic authorities, that we can point, even in water cooler conversations, to an even greater authority, to a government that will know no ends, that will bring peace, that will bring everlasting joy. Because it's not someone who has money to buy advertisements, it is someone who has the wealth to buy your soul back that there is a king who does not abuse his authority but uses it to lay his life down for the salvation of many. Don't have a conversation about government without having a conversation about God because there is no government apart from that that God has established. Pray for you, please. Father, we know in our hearts we are given to idols, whether it is ourself and convenience and comfort and our own stuff, whether it is our political party. Uh, for some here, whether it's video games, whatever it is, Pokemon, God, we, we are idols, and we, we do whatever, whatever is easiest and most convenient. And God, we're not called to do that. We're called to do what is right. And so I pray today, that you take the God and country stuff out of the things that we've talked about today and you help us to see this not as an issue of citizenship, but you help us to see it more properly as an act of discipleship. How do we honor you as king, as citizens of this country? Because God, you have sovereignly placed us here. We didn't pick what country we were born in. And while it's true that we get the leaders that we deserve, Father, perhaps we have been so otherworldly minded that we have not been this worldly good. And so help us to work for the cause of God and truth to do the things that are most beneficial not for our special interests but for the interests of all as we teach about God, truth, and righteousness. God, convict us of ways in which our priorities have been out of line and help this political season to be one of more fervent discipleship and not just political cronyism. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.